Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 1. We spoke a little bit on Sunday about Acts on the baton being passed. And as Luke wrote both the Gospel and this book, they are the two longest books in the New Testament. In fact, the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts make up about a quarter of the New Testament. So... Just by going through these two books, we'll have covered a quarter of the New Testament. Sounds impressive, huh? And what's great about the book of Acts is this is kind of our history. This is our spiritual genealogy, so to speak. This is our DNA makeup of where we are at right now. It it all takes root and began right here where we're reading. You know those ideas, I don't know if you guys are into genealogy and family trees and those kinds of things. I'm not. Uh, But if you are, you know, you you trace back and you say, oh, you know, look at my descendants came over on the Mayflower or something, you know, or mine mine came with Pancho Villa. I don't know where mine came, you know. They, They came here from this place and this is how we got here. And yeah, you can find your roots. Well, as a church... As a body of believers, this, what we're going to read, is how we got here, where we're at right now. And it's exciting because what began is continuing. And it's meant to. It's meant to continue. And so let's read from verses 1 through 11. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instruction through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So, when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside him. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. As Luke starts writing, and rehearses to this man, Theophilus. And we spoke a little bit about this Sunday, how Theophilus most likely was someone who Luke knew because he may have even been, uh, Luke might have been Theophilus's slave. And I know Theophilus sounds like a weird name, but it's not Theophilus' name there is. <laughs> and the name actually means lover of God. And as Luke wrote, wrote both the gospel and this book to this person. Think about this, because we've already talked about a quarter of the New Testament in these two books alone was written for one person. Luke took this much effort to research all the things that had happened, both through the gospel accounts, and we know that In the book of Acts, it looks like about chapter 16 or or 17, the pronoun changes for they to us, where he's actually included into the book and starts journeying with Paul. So he took the time to rehearse, to record, to look into all these things, to write them down for this one guy. That's a lot of effort to make for one person. 
And I think of Jesus' words of how he would leave the 99 to go and find the one. I, I don't know why Luke wrote this for this person. But he thought it worthwhile. And, and he had no idea he was writing the New Testament when he was writing this. He had no idea they were saying, yeah, if you write that, we're going to publish it. There was no publishing. You know, the reason it's thought that the book of Acts ends so abruptly is because he probably ran out of papyrus because usually it's about 35 feet long is the longest you can get. And they say that this book, the writing, is about 32 feet long in papyrus. That's a heck of a thing to carry around. i got my gospel loot, you know. I've got the, I mean, it's just this big hunking piece of paper that's all rolled up. And so it was a big effort to write this for this one person. And I think about us and the effort we make for people to let them know who Jesus was, all the things that he did and said. How much time do we spend? Luke spent this time. And what a testimony it was. And of course, now we're privileged to be able to enjoy it still as it was recorded, documented for us to enjoy it, is now part of God's account of, of not only what Jesus did, but also of the church which began. And, and it's interesting because it says there in verse 1 what Jesus began to do and teach. And we talked about it's not just teach, but it's to do and teach. What he did and then also what he taught. They go hand in hand, and actually that's the order they need to go in. But it's began to do and teach, and the idea is that he continues to do and teach by the Holy Spirit through the apostles, through this book, and through his church. It began with Jesus, and it's continuing through the apostles, and it's continuing through us to this day. We talked Sunday about that baton being handed down where now it's in our hands. It's been given to us this work to carry on what we're to, to do and say. Not just what we say, but what we do. And that matters so much. I mean, works and words go, go hand in hand. James talks about that. And James chapter 1, verse 23 says, Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks his face in his mirror but forgets what he looks like. It doesn't have an effect on him. He sees it, forgets it, because he doesn't do it. He just hears it and then puts it away. And so what Jesus began to do and teach, he continues to do and teach and say, through us today. So what are we doing? Not only what are we saying, what are we teaching, but what are we doing with this message, this good news that he's given to us? We see that Luke was willing to write all this out for this one person. What are we doing willing to do these things? In verse 2 it says, Unto the day he was taken up into heaven after giving instructions... That idea of giving instructions is, is also commandments. What, what are the commands that Jesus gave? What was the last command that he gave that we have recorded in the Gospels? It was the Great Commission. In Matthew 28, verse 18 through 20, it says, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And so Jesus' commands was to take this good news and to spread it throughout all the land to the ends of the world. And we're going to see he says that again there in verse 8. So that was his command. That's what he instructed them to do. That's the command that he gave them through the Holy Spirit to the apostles that he had chosen after he had suffered, after he had shown himself risen from the dead. And it says, by many convincing proofs that he was alive. Now, he appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. And again, we, we stop there because 40 days is a long time. 
that he kept appearing to them. He kept showing up to them, with them. And it, again, I, I talked Sunday about it. It's like, well, was it just for a brief moment and then he was gone? Well, it says here that he sat and ate with them. It might say that he was assembled with them, but the whole idea was that he did spend time and it was like having a meal with them. It wasn't just a, a, a brief appearance. He spent time with them. For 40 days, he was showing up to them. There are 12 different accounts, and I have a few of these that you guys are welcome to, to grab if you'd want. 12 different accounts that Jesus appeared after he was crucified in his resurrection to Mary Magdalene, to the other women, to the two disciples on the way to Emmaus, to Simon Peter, to the disciples without Thomas, to Thomas and the disciples, to the seven disciples by the Sea of Galilee, to more than 500 at one time, to James, his brother, to the eleven, to the disciples on Olivet, and to the Apostle Paul even in Corinthians 15, chapter 15, verse 8. So there's 12 different accounts that Jesus appeared. It wasn't just this one instance or, or wonder what's going to happen. He was showing up everywhere, always. It, it's not a un, it wasn't an uncommon thing. It was probably like, where is he at today? Did you see him? Did you see him today? No, I haven't seen him today. Oh, I heard, you know, the word comes down from, you know, oh, he showed up over here. He was over here. Oh, who got to see him? Oh, man, I wish I would have been there. And imagine living in that time of just knowing he's around, but not knowing where. And knowing when he's going to show up, how long is he going to stay? And what's his interaction with us going to be? Imagine this time. This is just an amazing and almost anxious period of time as they're experiencing him alive and at work among them, teaching them and ministering to them after he was crucified. And how exciting it was. And what he was doing was he was talking to them about the kingdom of God. Now, the kingdom of God is the reign of God and the rule of God in the hearts of men, both in a future tense and in a present tense. Their idea of the kingdom of God had been an establishment of a kingdom here on earth. It was the removal of the Roman occupancy of Jerusalem and the dominance of their rule over the, the Jewish people, the Israels as a nation. And, and they were looking for the kingdom of God to be established in that way, but throughout the Gospels, Jesus' account in the parables was saying the kingdom of, of God is present, is among you, is within you. His parables were all pointing that the work of God is in people. The kingdom of God is like a person who finds a pearl in a field and goes and sells everything that he has. And then so he could get that one pearl, the kingdom, you know, well, what is that pearl? That was us. That was that pearl that was of great price to the to that landowner that he wanted that for himself. Speaking of God coming and reaching, that was the kingdom of God. And all those examples of what the kingdom of God was, was God's rule in the hearts of people. And that's what he was establishing to them. And that's what he was continuing to talk about them while he's sitting there eating with them. And then he gives them another command. He says, do not leave Jerusalem. Wait. Maybe they were planning to go back home. I mean, Passover was over. Jesus had been crucified. They were probably thinking, well, I guess we'll go back. We know that Peter already was going back fishing when Jesus appeared to him on one of the accounts. But I love this. Jesus says, stay. Okay, I'm going into my dog training mode here. Don't leave Jerusalem. Wait for my gift. You know, when, when you're working with dogs and you're starting to introduce the command for a dog to stay, what you have to introduce is distraction as well. Because if a dog only stays when nothing's going on, then it's not good for anything. You have to get the dog to stay with distraction. And, and the whole point is you need the dog to understand that your command is more important, has more weight than any distractions around it. More than the doorbell ringing, more than, you know, people coming into the house or other dogs or whatever. That your command is more important than the other distractions. 
So the dog says, oh, what you say, I have to do. Jesus tells him, wait. I don't know what you're planning on doing. I don't know what's so important in your life. But you need to wait. Stay in Jerusalem. Don't go anywhere, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized you with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, that brings such a, a remind, reminder to what John the Baptist himself said. When he baptized Jesus, remember in Matthew 3, verse 11, John said, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. With fire. I believe it was Charles Finney was asked, how do you bring such a large crowd, large crowd to hear you preach? As he would preach and be so dynamic in his presentation that people were coming to faith in Christ by coming to him and, and he was constantly filling the places where he would go. And they asked, how do you do it? How do you get so many people to come to you? And he said, when you set yourself on fire, people will come and watch you burn. And if we would set ourselves on fire with the Holy Spirit, people would come to watch us burn. Burn with the passion of God. Burn with the presence and love of God that the Holy Spirit would ignite our hearts, that we would be baptized with the Holy Spirit and with fire. I love that fire, boy, because fire is a dangerous thing. It's, it's a powerful and just fascinating it, it can consume you, but it can warm you, depending on how it's used. And, and the Holy Spirit, He's there to consume us, and He's there to warm us. And that's His desire to do in our lives, as He told them to wait. Wait for this time to come. It's so important. You don't leave. You need this. You need this. And so they went, they met together and they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And he, he you know, again, they're thinking this kingdom, it needs to be established here. And he says, it's not for you to know dates or times the father has set in his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the world. I love that he says, my witnesses. You're not going to just be witnesses. You're going to be my witnesses. He doesn't say, you're going to go out and witness for me. You're going to be my witnesses. In other words, you're going to be a testimony of me. People will see you and they'll see me. That's what it means to be my witnesses. We're not just talking about him. We are representing him. We are his witnesses. And it's not something that we do as far as talk to people. I'm going to go out witnessing. Our lives should be a witness. Now, I know some people have a real knack of going out door to door, going out to the street and sharing their faith one on one with people who they've never met. Some people are real, real good at that, and that's, that's a valid ministry, a valid work. But there is, I think, a deeper and more important work that is just being a witness by your life being an example to those around you. So that before you say a word, you already have a testimony, what you do and say. And it's important for us to recognize that our lives are witnesses. Because then when we open our mouths, it's backed up by who we are. And not just what I'm saying. If I go to a stranger on the street and I tell them, this is what it is, this is what it is, this is what it is. They could say, yeah, that's great. I don't know you. I'm sorry. You, you have no validity in my life. I don't want to listen to you. 
But if it's someone who respects you because they see you and they desire the peace that they see in your life, then when you say something, it has power behind it because of who you are witnessing. Jesus, you're a witness of him. And so we need to recognize that we are his witnesses. As he says, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth... This is great because this has always been the heart of God. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 49. Isaiah 49, starting at verse 6. It says, He says, and this is the Lord, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob, to bring back those of Israel I have kept. That's not enough, he's saying. It is too small just to do that. He goes on and he says, I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. Isaiah 49 Verse 6. Did I say that? Or did I say something? Okay. Isaiah 49, 6. It is too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. That's not enough. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. You see, the nation of Israel's purpose was to bring the light of God's salvation to the ends of the earth. But they didn't do that. And as God was supposed to, or desired to use them to be that beacon of light where nations would come to them, the church is now going out to nations. Israel was a place where nations would see that and it would spread by them seeing the nation of Israel. Now God is saying, okay, to his church, go. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. That was God's desire. It's always been his desire to go to the ends of the earth with this good news. That was Jesus' last words that he commanded his disciples throughout the Gospels. It's the last words that he said here before he ascended into heaven. His last words to us are go. Go unless you get a no. Just go. And throughout the book of Acts, we actually see this does happen. We see that they do share in Jerusalem as Peter in the next chapter, next two chapters, preaches. And we see the church grow to 3,000 people overnight. We, We also see that they went to Judea and Samaria through Philip, who went and ministered as well as Saul's conversion And then Peter goes and ministers to Caesarea after he has a vision. And then we see them going to the ends of the earth through Paul and Paul's journeys. Paul going all the way to Asia Minor and to Rome itself. And so we see the progression actually taking place through the book of Acts. We see it start in Jerusalem, go through Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. And this takes place in a 30 to 40 year period of time through the book of Acts. But that was his command for them, and that's his command for us. And then he, as he says these things, after he says this is his last words, then he ascends. And they watch him go up, and and he goes into the clouds, much like the transfiguration where a cloud showed up around him, and he showed up in his glory. All of a sudden, he ascends into heaven, and they're staring there. They're just looking intently at him. And again, you wonder, what's going on in their minds? Because for 40 days, he was showing up and being with them and walking and working among them, but now he's gone. And I imagine there would be this feeling of sadness that would come over them. I remember when my family used to get together and we'd have Christmas or or Thanksgiving and I'd get together with all my cousins when I was young and, you know, I didn't have any brothers or sisters when I was young. And so 
I would go and I'd hang out with my cousin. It was a blast. It was like fun. And then when it was time to go, I remember I used to get the sadness in my heart. They're leaving. I'm leaving. And I'd be bummed because I'm not going to see them for a while. You know, it'd be months or who knows when we're going to see each other again. And so there was this, oh, no, they're going. And there was this sadness. And I can imagine the disciples or maybe you've been in that situation where you've had to say goodbye to someone. They're they're leaving, moving out of the house. We've done that with our children as our boys have moved out. It's like they're going, they're gone. You know, helping my son packing up all these things and moving out. And then there he goes. And there's this, oh, no, you know, he's gone. And then there's, oh, yes. No. (laughs) (laughs) But I can imagine there being a sadness in their heart as they watch him leave and thinking, now what? What does this mean? He had just given them the most important things they needed to know. The last things he told them was wait for power, the promise of the Spirit that my Father has promised you to come on you and go and be witnesses and preach to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. That's what I want you to do. Just gave them those two points. That's what they had to hold on to. And as they watch this, and they the same Jesus, we talked about that before, it's actually this Jesus, this one who left, is going to come back in the same way. And so this ends their time with Christ here on earth. That's it. Now what do they do? Well, let's read. Start at verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day walk from the city. And when they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Now, They go back and they go to this place on the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day walk, and they go upstairs. This could be the same upper room that they met in for the Last Supper. In Acts 12, 12, I believe it is, where they talk about uh, Mary, John Mark's mother, had a room in a place where they would reside in, and it could be the same place. And so they go to this place where they know and they've been hanging out. And as they're going there, he gives the list of all the apostles here, and then he says they were joined together constantly, or it might say in one accord, they all joined together constantly in one accord in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. First of all, the idea of joining together constantly in prayer. I love the way that's worded. Being of one accord, being in one mind. We see that phrase, one accord, takes place ten times throughout the book of Acts. It was something that was important and was common in the group of early believers. They had this unity and they got together and constantly were together in prayer. They were told by Jesus in verse 4 not to leave but to wait. And then we here see that they are constantly praying and gathering together. That's what waiting is. Waiting isn't watching TV, playing solitaire on your phone, or bubble breaker if you have phone. Waiting isn't just sitting there doing nothing. Waiting was joined together constantly in prayer. That's waiting. And they needed to wait 
for the promise to come. What would happen if every time we got together to pray, God answered a prayer? Every time we got together, God answered a prayer. I submit to you that every time we get together, God does answer a prayer. But it doesn't happen in just one day. They waited for about ten days after Jesus left. So what if it takes ten days? Will you still constantly get together or will you... You know, it's Monday night. The football game's on. You know, my TV show's on at 9. We gotta get out of here soon. I can't, you know, my kids are involved with this. What, what if it took a little bit more time and then the prayer would actually be answered? What, what if it just took a little bit longer? What if it took a little bit more effort? How much effort would it take before you say, okay, it's worth it? Because this was common for them. And God answered the prayer. And God filled them with the Spirit. And God worked in and among them throughout the book of Acts as they continually joined together in prayer. But we have a hard time because we have short attention spans. We're ADPD, attention deficit, prayer distraction. I don't know what you got. Where, I, you know, I've been praying for 10 minutes and nothing's happened. You need to wait. You need to wait. And we need to have this attitude if we want to have this power. We do. We need to be willing to wait. We need to be able to put aside the other distractions and wait on the Lord. We need to stay. Don't let those other distractions be more important than my command to you to wait. As they join together, constantly in prayer, in one accord, it, it says, along with the women and Mary, mother of Jesus and his brothers. Now here we see Mary, his mother, and we also see his brothers. We know that his brothers previously were not believers. Um, in John chapter 7, verse 5, it says, even his brothers did not believe in him, but after the resurrection, they became believers. You know, they probably said, I knew something was special about that kid. <laughs> We'd all go swimming. He'd go walking across the pool. <laughs> but here we see his his brothers become believers. And we see that Mary is with them as well. And it's important to, to see this and to recognize this because this is the last place that Mary appears in Scripture. After this, she's not mentioned again. And there are some who believe with the Catholic Church that Mary didn't die, that she ascended into heaven uh, it's not found in Scripture. This is the last place that she is seen, mentioned, and she's mentioned in the context of joining with the others, praying and waiting. I love the words that Mary said at the wedding feast when she went to Jesus and said, they're out of wine. And he says, woman, what, what does that have to do with me? And then she said to the servants, whatever he says, do. And I believe that's what needs to be understood. Whatever Jesus says, do. That's what we need. 
Whatever Jesus says, do. That, that, that's the important thing, is that we do what Jesus says. And here we see that she's with the group as well as his brothers. And what an amazing testimony that is, especially as we see Jude and James, his brothers, and the books that we have in the New Testament being written by Jesus' own brothers. And they don't use their status and say, by the way, I am Jesus' brother. They say, you know, James, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. A servant. There's no, you know, trying to get in with the family here. People say, well, you know, you pray to Mary because she can, you know, go to Jesus for you. You know, kind of go to the mom and she'll go to the the son for you. No, no, it doesn't work that way. Okay, that's not how the family's supposed to work. It's, you just go to Jesus. You don't need to go to Mary. You don't need to go to his brothers. His brothers said they were his servants. And so what a great testimony that is. In verse 15 it says, In those days Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, Brothers, and <clears throat> the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through the mouth of David concerning Judas, who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in this ministry. With the reward he got for his his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong, his body burst open, and all his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field in the language Alkeldama, that is, field of blood. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, May his place be deserted. Let there be no one to dwell in it. And may another take his place of leadership. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they proposed two men, Joseph called that guy Barsabas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots and the lot fell to Matthias. So he was added to the eleven apostles. Peter stands up, and it shows that he indeed was one of the leaders as he rises up and makes this statement, and and he talks about Judas. And what's interesting here is he quotes Psalm 69 and Psalm 109, and I think it's fascinating because we see that Peter knew the scriptures. How did he know the scriptures? He was a fisherman. He wasn't good enough to become a rabbi. He wasn't one of the followers of the rabbis until Jesus came along, which was probably later on in life. Because usually, when you were a kid, you would travel with the rabbi up to a certain age, and if they felt that you weren't old or didn't have what it took, they would say, you know what, you need to go back to your home and carry and find a trade that you can do because basically you're not good enough to be one of my students. And that's where we find Peter fishing. Wasn't good enough. Wasn't one of the best of the best of the best. But here we see he knows scripture and no doubt it was spending time with Jesus. He spent three years with Jesus and he started to know the scripture. We see throughout Jesus' account with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the lawyers at that time, he had command of the scriptures. He knew them backwards and forwards. Of course, he he wrote them. So yeah, that gives them a little advantage. But he knew the scriptures, and so he was able to rehearse them with the disciples, and he did. And now they have taken root in Peter's life. And you guys, if you are going to be used by God, if I am going to be used by God, we need to know the scriptures. You need to know them. It's a necessary part of knowing and walking with God. They are our guidelines on how to live. And if we don't know them, we are going to make decisions 
that are going to be contrary and have negative results in our lives. And if we are going to have something to share with people, it needs to be from Scripture. It needs to be validated by what God has already put His stamp of approval on. I remember one time counseling with someone. They were counseling me. And the first thing he said to me, I'm not here to tell you what I think. I'm here to tell you what the scriptures say about this. And I remember thinking, wow, that makes a whole lot of sense. Because if I know what the scriptures say regarding this, then I know how God feels about this. Now let's face it. There are some things that are black and white in scripture. Thou shalt not murder. Got that one. But then there's some things that aren't quite as clear. It doesn't say, thou shalt take the job in Orange County. It's not in there. So how do you know? Well, when you know the scriptures, you get to know the heart of God, and it becomes a part of how you make every decision not just the ones that are black and white, but it guides you in principle through a lot of the things that you do. Because if you don't know not only the whole of what the scriptures teach, but the heart of God who is behind the scriptures, you can become very legalistic, you can become very exclusive, and set boundaries that God has never set. Just by pulling out a few things here and there, you make your own rules, your own decisions of this is how it is well, if you understand the whole of scripture like Jesus did then you're able to have and capture the heart of God that's why the Pharisees would say this to Jesus but Jesus says haven't you read about this also and what was he doing he was shining a brighter light on what they said because he knew the scriptures he knew all of them he didn't just pick and choose the ones that fit his way of thinking he knew the whole of them we need to know the scriptures if we're going to be used by God. And so Peter goes on and he says, this needs to be done. And therefore, they chose two men. This one guy who has all kinds of names. Joseph called Barasabas, also known as Justice. Like, pick a name, dude. What is it? So Joseph, we'll call him, because that's the one of the easier ones. And Matthias. Those are the two, and they set this criteria, those who were with Jesus from the beginning all the way to the end. They cast lots, and they fell on Matthias. He got the short or the long straw, whichever they decided, and he ended up being numbered among the eleven. Now, there's a lot of speculation on what's taking place here, because after this point, they never draw lots again, because in chapter 2, they're going to be led and governed by the Holy Spirit instead of casting lots. And so some people say, this was a mistake, they shouldn't have drawn lots, but Peter was guided by the scriptures. Remember that they had the Spirit of God within them, at this point, John chapter 20, we talked about that, where Jesus breathed on them and said, Receive ye the Holy Spirit. They had the Spirit indwelling them at this point. That is how they could have the Spirit then come upon them and use them in a more powerful way. So the Spirit of God was within them. He wasn't abandoning them. And we're going to talk about this a lot more next week as we get into chapter 2. But there's no reason to say that this was a bad decision. That it was really Paul who was supposed to be there. We know that Paul did see Jesus in 1 Corinthians 15, 8, I believe it is. It talks about his encounter and seeing the Lord. I also saw the Lord, I'm an apostle, out of season, he says. And so some say that, well, Paul was supposed to be the 12th because he's the one who has the most record. And we never see Matthias mentioned here again in the book of Acts. Well, there's a lot of them you don't see mentioned in the book of Acts again. It's not just him. We talked about Mary and some of the other disciples. You don't hear about them anymore either. Did they stop being disciples or apostles? No. And, and so I think that's a big step to make that step and say what he did was wrong. It says here he was numbered with the 12. Well, he's numbered with the 12. It was definitely a place of prominence at that time and position, but doesn't really matter. 
It's not something that's going to make a difference in one way or another. He didn't get brownie points in heaven because he got numbered among the 12. It was just a position that needed to be fulfilled scripturally, and so they did that. Bottom line, as these last verses end this time before we see the day of Pentecost come, we see that they were committed to being together, that they were desiring to be obedient to scripture and do what they could. And God was going to meet them there. And the same is true for us. I'm amazed at how God is so merciful to, to meet the needs that we have in situations that are so varied. There are some people I know who, who are very lacking in their knowledge of Scripture. Maybe they just come to faith in Christ and they're very young and they, they're lacking. And I know that's been my case for years and God would say, I, that's okay. I'll still minister to you now. I'll still guide you. I'll still give you something. And I'll still help you along the way. I'm still going to work in your life. God is faithful. He who's promised, he who has begun a good work, is going to perform and perfect that work in each of us. And what a great promise that is, that if we belong to him, the work in us continues. And so... What was taking place here? They were waiting. They wanted to be obedient. They knew the scriptures. They were moving on what they knew. And God honored it. God was still going to use them. And this isn't going to be like, oh no, you guys, Matthias, oh no, oh no, what do I do now with Paul? How am I going to fix this? It's not a deal. It's not a problem. God doesn't have a problem with it. We don't see a problem with it in scripture. Only thousands of years later do we have problems with it because we've got problems. But it wasn't a problem for God, and God was moving and at work in their lives. And because they were obedient, because they were waiting on Him, God was going to move among them. That's what He desires to do with us. If we will wait, if we will commit ourselves to His Word, to the Scripture, to be obedient, He's going to work in our lives and among us that we could be his witnesses, that our lives would be his witnesses. Let's pray. Father, the, the stage is set in this first chapter for the work that you are going to continue to do. And Lord, though it won't be you doing it, it will be your spirit and those who believe in you and those who wait upon you, those who have faith in you. Lord, we want to be numbered with them. We want to be those who wait upon you, those who trust in your words and put faith in you, Lord. And Lord, it is, I believe, obvious to all of us that we lack when it comes to waiting on you. Father, that we get tired, give up too soon, are distracted too easily, that we don't stay and wait. And Lord, what that means is that those things that you have for us, if we're honest with ourselves, maybe they're just not as important as they should be to us. But Lord, I want my heart to change. I want to wait. I want the things that you have for me to be more important than the distractions around me. Father, may we wait upon you that we may be your witnesses in the things that we do as well as the things that we say. May we take this message, this good news, 
throughout our community and even to the ends of this earth, Lord. May you use us to do that. I know that there are needs here tonight. Some of them I know and some we've even talked about. And some of them are just buried in your hearts and maybe it's you don't want to be selfish and and take time and you don't feel like your needs need to be spoken (laughs) up. But I do want to take time where we just wait right now a few minutes and and pray and ask the Lord to to be sufficient within us to give us strength to, to wait and the ability to be his witnesses and I pray that we would just take this time and open our hearts to God cry out to him for his power cry out to Him for His Spirit to come upon us that we too could be witnesses to those around us. And so I I beg of you, open your hearts and share with God the things that are going on, the desires that you have. And let's take some time and wait upon Him and pray to Him. Father, there's so much need to, to wait on you and I pray that we would have more opportunities like this together Lord and make opportunities Lord may I just uh, have a burden on my heart for us to wait upon you Lord and uh, I pray we take home with us this desire Lord that we would wait upon you even at home in our rooms and with our families Lord God we we do lift up the needs that are among us, Father, the needs of those around us who need you, and for the power that is in you and by your Spirit, Lord, to equip us to do your work. Thank you, God, for your faithfulness, Lord. Lord, you said if we knock, you would open, that if we ask, you would give to us, Father, if we sought you, we would find, Lord, and I pray we wouldn't give up, Lord. We would continue seeking, continue knocking, continue asking, God, until you answer. And may we be satisfied with the answers you give, Lord. We have faith in you, Lord, knowing that you care for us and you're at work for our benefit, Lord. Thank you for this time, Lord. May you be honored in our lives and in this body of believers here. In Jesus' name, amen.